Let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our great Father, we do come before you this morning in humility, bowing before you, for you are great and mighty and awesome and worthy of all our worship. Father, we desire to be pleasing to you as the body of Christ this morning. Pray that you would guide our minds and our hearts as we come together to worship. Father, may we worship in spirit and in truth. May you be magnified and may the Lord Jesus be uplifted. Lord, that's our true desire this morning as we walk through the scriptures for which we are so grateful. Pray that you would guide our minds as we uh, open the scriptures, that your spirit would illumine us to the truth, and that you would communicate uh, the, the truth of scripture, Lord, that we would incorporate it into our thinking, that we would yield to it as we know it is true and righteous and will lead us into righteousness. So for these things, we give you glory this morning, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is week number 59 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 11, just began that chapter last week, but before we go there, I want to share a little something with you. You'll recall that as we walk through chapter 10, that I gave an explanation of the 21 days of mourning that I believe that Daniel had a vision and then he began to petition the Lord to give him an understanding of it, an explanation of it, and that that has not happened for 21 days. Daniel has been praying and waiting on the Lord and he is mourning and he's um, humbling himself by not taking of the foods that he was privileged to take by not anointing himself with oil, basically humbling himself before the Lord, uh, seeking for the Lord to send this answer. And that the angel says when he finally gets to Daniel, I was delayed for 21 days um, because the evil angel of the nation of Persia was opposing me. And I couldn't get by him until... uh, Michael came and helped me with him and then I was able to come to you and so here I am and to me that's a plausible explanation It's the reason that Daniel had been mourning but this week um, as I was just reading some of the the writers that I read um, I came across another plausible explanation of this and I have a reason that I want to share this with you and I'll do that at the end Um, I was reading in a book written by uh, John Walvoord, um, the guy that, to me, um, has a right understanding. He uh, he lived from 1910 to 2002, so he's been gone for 20 years, but he left behind some 24 volumes uh, that he wrote. Most of it deals with eschatology. Um, some of it doesn't. Um, really, really good expositor of the scriptures. So I would recommend uh, his writings to you. You can find them at walvord.com. Um, John Walvord is his name. And he has a different take on it. He believes that 
Daniel had received V-O-O-R-D, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D dot com. And you'll see his books there. You also see a bunch of articles that he recorded, um, some um, conferences that he was at or recorded there. I mean, really, really good expositor. Great voice. You know, one of those old 19, born in 1910, this, this powerful man with a huge voice. Um, so anyway, he's, he's a straight shooter. He's got a book called um, Every Prophecy in the Bible that's about Yathik and is just really good. It's very, very readable. He also has, um, he, he did an exposition of Daniel, did an exposition of Revelation. Um, he often puts Old Testament and New Testament together. Just really, really good um, exposition. And um, so his take on this is that Daniel had received word that the building of the temple had been halted in um, Judah. And if you think about the third year of Darius and Zerubbabel going and them working for two years, I mean, it's consistent with the timing of things for him to make that statement. And then uh, he believes that Daniel was not mourning because he had had a vision, but he was mourning because the work had stopped. And he was anticipating a vision from the Lord to explain why the work had stopped. And, um, and so he goes on and he mourns for 21 days. And then the angel comes. And he has the same take on the angel that he was delayed for 21 days because that's what the scripture says. But he has this thought that the word had reached Daniel about the stopping of the work and Daniel had begun to mourn because of that. The reason Daniel um, didn't start mourning until the third day of the month. You remember the angel is the 24th day of the month and Daniel's been mourning for 21 days. So he didn't start mourning until the third day of the first month. And Valverde's take on that is that the reason for that is because the first two days of the year are first the beginning of the new year and then also the new moon and their days of festival and great joy and because the new year is begun. And so you would not ever mourn on those first two days so he waited to the third day. Again, a plausible explanation about why it's the 24th day of the month when the angel finally gets to him. Um, so the reason I share that with you is that that's a plausible explanation that Daniel anticipated a vision and that he began to mourn because the temple building had stopped the issue I take with that, and, and now John Walverd is a guy I love, and I love his writings, and um, so there, I have no problem with him at all. But the issue I have with his interpretation is that the scripture doesn't say that, right? Nowhere does Daniel say, I got word, and so I began to mourn, and that uh, I anticipate that God's going to give me a vision. I think if Daniel had received word and that he anticipated a vision, that's exactly what he would have said. That's what he would have wrote, is that the reason I'm mourning is because the temple worship, I mean, temple building, rebuilding has stopped. And so I'm asking God to give me an answer as to why it stopped. 
He doesn't say that. And so because of the silence of Daniel on those two issues, first, nowhere in Daniel do we see that he was anticipating a vision other than in chapter 2 where he asked God to show him the vision and the explanation that Nebuchadnezzar had. You remember Nebuchadnezzar came to all the wise men, said, I want you to give me an interpretation of my vision, but I'm not going to tell you what it was. You tell me what the vision was and what the interpretation is, then I'll know you're accurate. And so Daniel went before the Lord because he was going to be killed and asked God to give him the vision. And God did immediately. No, no waiting to do that. That same night, God gave him the vision and the interpretation. So nowhere else in Daniel do we see Daniel anticipating a vision. They just all of a sudden happen, right? In the first year of Darius or in, you know, um, the writing on the wall, even, he didn't anticipate. It was just there, and so he interpreted it. So I don't see Daniel ever anticipating a vision in the book. And so I have a little trouble with him waiting, you know, anticipating for 21 days. And um, so um, Wildford could be correct or I could be correct. The, the reason I share that with you is to show you that even guys who take the same view, he believes in rapture, he believes in... Um, the seven years of tribulation, he believes, I mean, basically he's down the line with what I've been teaching you, and, um, but yet we disagree on this. And so even true believers who have pretty much the same slant on eschatology can still disagree on the details and still love one another and get along with one another. You don't have to argue about it, right? You can just say, I, I don't see it that way because, and he'll say, well, I see it that way because. And the scripture isn't explicit in why Daniel was mourning or why, well, we know why it took 21 days. So I disagree with him, but I still love him and I would recommend highly his writings to you and that you ought to spend some time in his website. Um, but I still am going to disagree with them. So you can have different views of these things, whereas the overall is the same. In the details, sometimes we can disagree, and it's okay. It's not a problem with that. You don't have to fuss about it and get upset, and like so many do. Um, I'm not ever going to, I pray to the Lord, I never get upset because someone interprets eschatology different than I do. I have reasons for what I teach, and so, um, and sometimes they don't. <laughs> they just believe it because someone told it to them. I would rather be able to tell you what I believe because I studied it, and I have reasons. If I don't have reasons, then I won't teach it to you. Um, so anyway, that's where I'm at, and I'm going to stay with 21 days of mourning because he had a vision and he desires the interpretation, but I could be wrong. Okay, so Daniel chapter 11, we've started into this chapter, and as I've said previously, I believe chapter 11 sweeps all the way from the time of Daniel to the end of the age, to what the um, Old Testament calls the end times. So it's the time when Jesus Christ is reigning. Um, so I believe it covers all of that 
entire expanse. The first 35 verses covering the time from Daniel up to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, who we've talked about before, and then 36 to the end of the chapter, really into the next chapter, chapter 12, covering the time of the end times. And I'll show, when we get there, we'll look at why I believe that it jumps. Now, we've already talked about Antiochus Epiphanes a good bit, because I believe chapter 8 is fulfilled, at least in the short term, by the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, in 175-170 BC, somewhere in that time frame. And so we, we have talked about him, and chapter 8 explicitly tells us that it is about the Medo-Persians and the Greeks fighting against one another. Uh, given in chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, it says that the ram is Medo-Persia, the goat, the shaggy goat, is Greece. And so it's explicit, it's not, you can't miss it, because the scripture gives it to us. But in that um, time frame, chapter 8 jumps from Alexander the Greek to Antiochus Epiphanes. There is no bridge, there's no discussion of what happens. And Antiochus doesn't come until 140 years after Alexander the Greek dies. So you've got 148 years that chapter 8 omits, and it jumps from Alexander to Antiochus. Um, chapter 11 does not do that. It details what happens in those 148 years in explicit detail, and we'll see some of that this morning. So that's why it's still worth going through this, because we have 148 years to see, did history match what the Book of Truth said. Now, of course it does. The Book of Truth is never wrong, um, and the historical record in this case um, matches what is given in these 148 years. So that's what the angel is going to do. He's going to walk through these years between Alexander the Greek and Antiochus Epiphanes. Alexander the Greek became um, the king of Greece in, let me get this right, um, 336, that's not right, is three, he died in 323, and he was king for something like 13 years, so it would be 336 um, BC, and this book, is in that Daniel's writing was in the third year of Cyrus. Cyrus became king of Babylon, Medo-Persia, the whole thing, in 539 BC. So in 536 BC, this vision takes place, and the angel is prophesying about what will happen in 200 years into the future. So pretty distant. Um, and he gives details that are astonishing, quite frankly, when you look at them, because it's so detailed, and you, can we match this? And you can, and we'll do that this morning. 
So this angel is prophesying about things that won't happen for 200 years when he starts talking about Alexander the Great and his kingdom being broken up. And then he goes on for another 148 years. So he's prophesying 350 years into the future and then ultimately all the way to the end of the age. So, I mean, you know, this is why the liberals say, when we look at the detail and see how it matches, this book could not have been written until after Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC. And that's what they say, that um, it's an imposter, it's not really Daniel of the ancient world, it's somebody in the second century BC who after all this history wrote, wrote it down and said that it was prophesied. Now, they have a real problem that in 1947 to 1956, the Qumran uh, documents were found, better known as the Dead Sea Scroll documents. Some 929 manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, some of them complete books, some of them just fragments. But every book of the Bible, at least a fragment of the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther, was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So monumental discovery and complete in full documents of the book of Daniel found in the Dead Sea Scrolls from the beginning to the end. And these Qumran dates back to the second century BC. But even the liberals agree that the documents that were found, because of the language that they were written in, had existed for at least 200 years before that. So that puts you back to the fourth century BC and most likely the fifth century BC when Daniel actually wrote it. So in, from 1947 to 1956, the scrolls were discovered in, I think it's nine or 10 different caves in the land of Qumran, which was uh, um, where a sect of the Jewish, the Essenes sect, you have the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the Essenes. The Essenes lived in Qumran, where these documents were found. And so they were the carekeeper, carekeeper, carekeepers of these 929 scrolls or fragments of scrolls that they found. And so it dates, it predates to the second century. It really dates back to the fourth or fifth century BC. So all of a sudden, the liberals have a problem, right? That they even agree that there's no way that this language was written before the fourth century BC. So their claim that it was written in the second century BC is significantly weakened. Matter of fact, decimated. So it'll be interesting to see what the liberals come up with, because they will. Uh, some other reason that Daniel wasn't written in the fifth century B or sixth century BC, but anyway, just understand that their arguments for the time being have been defeated by the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so they are pretty much quiet these days about when the book of Daniel was written. Um, so as always, as we discover more, more verification of the scriptures and those Hebrew texts 
that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls um, just simply verify to a higher degree how accurate our translations are. Because uh, when they compared them back to the documents that were used to translate the scriptures you hold in your hands, almost verbatim. And so we just get further verification from these ancient scrolls. You remember I told you that they have uncovered uh, a moat around part of Jerusalem that was only discovered within the last 10 years, which matches what uh, Ezekiel said about a moat being around the city of Jerusalem. Uh, did never find that before, but they found it in the last 10 years. So the more we discover, the more we find, the more accurate the scriptures become. Um, never that we doubted the scriptures, it's just nice to see um, that even the heathen find things that verify that the scriptures are true. Okay, a lot, lot of words this morning, right? Uh, so um, as we go through this, um, we've already looked at verses 2 and 3. Uh, we talked about these. Um, this is where um, there, then a fourth king will arise out of Persia, gain far more riches than all of them, and as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire, the Persian empire, against the Greeks. And there is um, recorded in history wars between Persia and Greece. Now, Greece was a pretty insignificant country during the Persian reign. It was not anything special until the end of the Persian reign. And there, um, the Persians invaded the Greeks from 492 to 449 BC. There were these ongoing wars. They were begun by Darius I, but the best wars we know about were by Xerxes I, when he himself led an invasion. And they were quite successful. I mean, they overran most of Greece. They burned Athens, so the most significant city in the country. And yet over time, and that was when Xerxes went, was at the height of the Persian Empire. And then yet they continued, that was in 480 BC, so they continued to fight for another 31 years. And at the end of the day, the Greeks defeated the Persians, not in the way that Alexander did, but they held their own country. And so the Persians retreated, pretty much defeated by the Greeks. And so we do have this verse two here talks about those wars that we have chronicled in history. And so, uh, again, just verification. But then as you get into in verses 3 and 4, you get this detailed explanation, um, beginning with Alexander the Greek. We know that the strong king, uh, verse 3, is Alexander the, the Great because of what happens in verse 4. You notice in verse 4, this king will arise and he will have rule and authority and do as he please. We know that that clearly is what Alexander did as he took over most of the known world. Uh, never pressed into India beyond the Tigris and the Euphrates, but he wanted to, but his troops said enough, enough is enough. 
And so he wound up dying in Persia at a young age, the age of 32. And so <clears throat> that's what verse 4 says. But as soon as he had arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them, meaning given to others besides his descendants. Um, now, Alexander was king for 13 years over Greece. He became king when he was 20, and he died when he was 32. So for almost 13 years, he was king over Greece. So when the scripture says, but as soon as he had arisen, it's really covering 13 years. Um, but, and that's a young age to die at, and clearly uh, he conquered much in, in an expeditious manner. Now, we've talked about this before, but I want to look at it in Scripture one more time. Back in chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, we have the vision of the ram and the shaggy goat doing battle with one another. And then we are given the interpretation a little later. So in chapter 8, in verse 5, Daniel wrote, While I was observing, and again, this is the ram and the shaggy goat, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him with his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, so that was the vision that Daniel had. But then the interpretation is given a few verses later in chapter 8 and verse 21. And you can't miss this, right? <laughs> Starting in verse 20. Then the ram which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king which would be Alexander the Great. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So that's Alexander dying and his kingdom being broken into four kingdoms as we interpreted it when we were there. Now look at the next verse in chapter 8. In the latter period of their rule of the four king kingdoms, when the transgressions have run their course, a king will arise. And as you read through this, that is Antiochus Epiphanes. So chapter 8 jumps from 
Alexander the Great and his kingdom being divided to Antiochus Epiphanes with no details in between. Chapter 11 fills in those details for us. So it's the same, but it's different. We still get Alexander the Great, we still get Antiochus Epiphanes, but we get the 148 years in between the two. Now, and so that's why this angel reads this out of the Book of Truth to Daniel, is to fill in some of these details that were omitted in chapter 8. Okay, so that's what this is going to be in chapter 11, is the details between Alexander and Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Okay, so we go on and we continue to read this, and you, you're given four kingdoms. Now, those four kingdoms we know out of history are the Ptolemies, who reigned in Egypt, and the Seleucids, who reigned in the um, east, but they were in Syria, but Syria was not a country there at that time. So you have Syria, you have the Mesopotamia, you have all the lands of Persia, all the way up to Asia Minor. But then in Asia Minor, you had the Pergamons, which was the third uh, nation, and then you had the Macedons back in the homeland, actually, of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a Macedonian, and so the Macedons reigned in that part of the world. So you had the Macedons, the Pergamons, the Seleucids, and the Ptolemies are the four nations that came out of Alexander the Great's nation. Now the greatest of those clearly were the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in the eastern part of, um, of the country. So um, those two, it took 40 years or so after Alexander the Great died for the, for the dust to settle and these nations to be established. And the Seleucid nation was not originally the Seleucid nation. I'll show you in scripture why it became that. You'll notice in verse five, you start talking about indescriptive people. He says, then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion, his dominion will be a great dominion. And then in the next verse, you see the king of the south and the king of the north, okay? The, if you lay out the geography, the king of the south is the Ptolemy dynasty in Egypt. The king of the north, which would be to the north of, the, of Ptolemy, would be what became the Seleucid Empire. Now, clearly, Macedon and Pergamon are further north, but that's not who's being talked about here. They were nowhere near as significant or as powerful as the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And Antiochus the the fourth Epiphanes comes out of the Seleucid Empire. Okay, now, so the king of the south is the Ptolemies out of Egypt. And you notice it says that the king of the south and one of his princes 
gain dominion. Okay, when the dust settled and you had the four kingdoms, a guy named Antigonus was over the, what became the Seleucid Empire. And underneath him, one of his ranking officers was a guy named Seleucus I. So what Seleucus did, he wanted to be the king. So he went and joined forces with the Ptolemies, became one of the generals of their army, and they invaded Antigonus to the north and defeated him. And then because of the great victory, Ptolemy set up Seleucus as the king of that northern kingdom, which became the Seleucids because of his name. And then the Ptolemies went back to their country. So here when you see the king of the south will grow strong, that's Ptolemy, along with one of his princes, that's Seleucus I, who left Antigonus and went and joined Ptolemy. And then it says, and the king of the south will come, sorry, in verse 5, one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. That's Seleucus being made king of the Seleucids. And so his domain will be a great dominion indeed. And it was. And so you then have established the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And there, you, know, you look at scripture and you say, this does not make any sense. How, how does this work? How could Ptolemy and one of his princes become part of the Seleucid dynasty. And it's because Seleucus I defected, went to Ptolemy, and then invaded Antigonus, who he had been loyal to, but then he turned against him because he wanted to be king, and he was installed as king. So scripture here, 200 years before, predicted what was going to happen. History shows that it indeed did happen exactly as the scripture, very detailed in what it says, happened. Now, keep reading, because verse 6 gives even more detailed. You go on and it says, After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who seared her as well as he who supported her in those times. So what in the world does that mean, right? Well, it wasn't uncommon. Matter of fact, it was very common for the royalty of nations to intermarry. Happened all the time. I mean, you ultimately see it with um, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, right? She of the Ptolemy dynasty, he of the Roman dynasty. And their demise is well chronicled in history. That was the same thing that was going on. But here we have the daughter of the king of the south. 
All right, the king of the south, by the time you get to when this happens, is Ptolemy II. And he had a daughter named Bernice. Very feminine name, right? Bernice. And the Ptolemy II seared, means gave in marriage as the father to Seleucus II, his daughter, Bernice. And so they became married. Seleucus and the daughter of Ptolemy became, were married. Now, Seleucus had a previous wife named um, Laodice. And she obviously didn't like this, that Seleucus had married Ptolemy's daughter. So she formed a conspiracy against Seleucus and Bernice. And the ultimate result of that conspiracy was that both Seleucus and Bernice were killed. And about that same time, Bernice's father, Ptolemy, died not by war, but just by old age. And so the three of them, Seleucus, Bernice, and Ptolemy, all died about the same time. So this verse, when it says, and some years later they will form an alliance, that's Ptolemy II and Seleucus II forming an alliance, and that alliance is confirmed by the marriage the king of the south will come to the king in the north to carry out a peaceful agreement and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. That's Bernice and Seleucus II being married. That's the peaceful arrangement, okay? But she will not retain her position. That's Bernice, will not pertain her position, nor will he, that's Seleucus, remain with his power, but she will be given up, Bernice, along with those who brought her in, that's Ptolemy, because he's the one who brought her in, who seared her as well as he who supported her in those times. So all of them, detailed in the scripture here, die together. Now there's no way that you could predict that, right? There's other than reading the book of truth, that these two kings would get together, I'll give you my daughter if you'll marry her, and we'll get along with one another, and then the ex-wife comes in, forms a conspiracy, and kills them both. And then, um, I don't remember the name of the guy who takes the throne after them, it's not Seleucus III, it's one of the other names that's used, probably one of the Dariuses um, that takes the throne. But anyway, this verse 6 perfectly describes what happens in that second generation of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. To, I mean, an, to an excruciating detail. So there is no way that anybody could predict that that's what would happen. 200 years before it happened, more than that, it's probably closer to 250 years by the time you get to this arranged marriage, um, just shows 
what is written in the book of truth. Remember, this angel is literally, I believe, reading from the book of truth, summarizing to some degree, but reading from the book of truth to Daniel what's going to happen in the future. So this, I mean, if God would write down in the book of truth that Bernice and Seleucus would get married and then die, and that Ptolemy would sear his daughter to Seleucus, if he would write that down, you can just imagine what he would write down about you and I. I mean, this is a detailed, detailed book. And it was perfectly fulfilled. And it was written, even the liberals would have to agree, well before any of this happened. And so the, the book of truth is amazing in its detail. Now it will go on through the next generations of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and their wars and the fighting and all that happened. I mean, you remember, even when you get to Antiochus, he invades um, uh, the Ptolemies. And I'll just tell you, I mean, I can't remember if it's in this chapter or not. I haven't picked apart all the bones yet, but we will. Um, Antiochus gives his sister to marry into to the Ptolemy reign. They have two sons who are young, younger than teenagers, who Antiochus Epiphanes invades his own nephews to destroy them. So he, he's not successful, but yet that's who he's invading, it's his own nephews. So this intermarriage goes on all the way through the Ptolemy and the Seleucid reigns. It's one of the ways they think they're gonna make peace with one another. Never happened. Okay, so this is where we'll leave off today is with verse 6. Um, we'll pick up with verse 7 and continue to see history unfolded in the words of the angel to Daniel. But we should be astonished at how accurate this prophecy is and how history confirms it was exactly to the detail right. And there are many, many, many more prophecies given here. So we'll stop there today. I appreciate your time.